Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. I'm your host, Jace. This is your new Comics Wednesday episode for April 7th, 2021. Got a few books I'm going to talk about today that I've already had a chance to read. I want to remind everybody, if you're looking for thoughts on the DC stuff, uh, the DC Spotlight comes out on Tuesdays, and the DC Spotlight is also full of spoilers. So if you haven't had a chance to read the books yet... Uh, be sure you do that before you go and check out the DC Spotlight. You can listen to it on the podcast, or you can check out the DC Spotlight on the Comic Boom YouTube channel, where you can see uh, a lot of the pages and art as well. Uh, this new Comic Wednesday episode, uh, as usual, will be spoiler-free. I'll talk about the books in general, but there won't be anything spoilery. So if you haven't had a chance to read the books yet, you can still listen and decide what it is that you want to pick up at your local comic shop today. This was actually a really good week. Uh, a lot of books were uh, anticipated. We have the, the second issue of ENIAC from Bad Idea. We have the first issue of Tankers from Bad Idea. And uh, as soon as I finish recording this episode, I'm going to head out to my shop and camp out overnight, try to get that Tankers button. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, but there's also a ton of other books that were anticipated this week, like uh, the second issue of Noctera. We've got the first issue of Geiger, the first issue of Patron Project from, or Project Patron rather, from um, from Steve Orlando and Aftershock. So, ton of really really good books this week, and uh, I'm going to talk about uh, a few of them here, as I said. So, we'll start with Commanders in Crisis. This is from uh, creator and writer Steve Orlando, with art by creator and artist. David Tinto. The colors are by Francesca Caratanudo with letters by Fabio Emilia. So this is continuing the story that really is a celebration of comics by Steve Orlando with these, uh, these commanders, these former presidents of the United States from other multiverses who uh, have come to the last earth that exists in the multiverse. And unbeknownst to them, it's sort of the equivalent of Earth 3 in the DC multiverse. Uh, good is bad, bad is good, and that sort of thing. And so they, they're brought here, and without them knowing it, they're kind of behind the eight ball and trying to save this world. And when empathy, the, the idea of empathy or the, the emotion of empathy is killed early on, it puts them even, even further back. So uh, Frontier, kind of the, the leader of the group, if you will, the leaders of the, the commanders in crisis who brought everybody here, uh, she concealed those facts from uh, the team as far as it being the Earth 3 uh, kind of analog uh, they didn't trust her because she because uh, she did that. And so the group is sort of fractured right now. And Frontier is out there trying to make up for what she did. And she gets a chance to go to the lightning world where she gets an understanding of of in this multiverse where ideas come from. So it's a it's a very interesting idea from Steve Orlando. And he gives us at least one of these really crazy out there ideas that is sort of leveling up traditional comic ideas from uh, the past. And, uh, and in this book, it, it is uh, just what I was talking about, how the fact that there's this, this lightning world where ideas come from. And so uh, this book is, it's over the top. It's a heck of a lot of fun. Uh, we get introduced to a new costume hero right at the end that uh, I won't say anything more about because you need to, uh, to check it out for yourself. And it's all coming to a head in terms of, 
are the commanders in crisis going to be able to save the day? Um, the, the remainder of the team uh, who stayed together after the, the truth was revealed by Frontier and, you know, they kind of, I don't want to say they rejected her, but they just felt like they couldn't trust her anymore and they kind of split off with her, but, and they're still trying to do their best to save the world. And they decided to do the exact opposite of what Frontier had been doing all along. And we saw that at the end of issue six, kind of a mic drop ending where uh, the remaining the remaining commanders in crisis revealed to the world, hey, we're actually heroes from other uh, multiverse or other realities, and this world is in danger, and we all need to work together. And you know, by them revealing the truth, like I said, they were sort of taking the 180 degree approach that uh, that Frontier had taken, and we start to see a little bit of the sort of reaction and fallout from that in this issue. But I think that is going to play a big role going forward. How does the world respond? Uh, the balls in their court, so to speak, uh, in terms of the commanders in crisis, having told them, you know, what's going on, basically, will they be able to handle it? Will they come together or will, will it fracture the world more? So that's a big theme uh, in this issue as well as uh, you know, frontier visiting the, the lightning world and so uh, what happens next i guess we'll have to uh to tune in we do get uh, a little bit of a hint of, of time travel in the the next issue issue eight uh, because the blurb at the end of this one says next discoveries at the dawn of civilization so we may be going back uh in time in the next issue uh, as far as the art goes david tinto is uh is wonderful in terms of his art he gives these crazy ideas a traditional comic book feel. Uh, his line work is super clean. The color work, it's not really overly bright uh, in terms of the, the choices, the tones of the colors, but it's a very bright comic in terms of, you know, it's, it's blue skies, it's sunshine. It doesn't feel dark and foreboding like maybe you would think based on the fact this is sort of a, an apocalyptic story in a way with all the rest of the multiverse having been destroyed and uh, there's only one world left, but Francesca Caratanudo does a great job of, of keeping it very bright, which helps to sell it as this sort of fun adventuresome comic, even though the stakes are, uh, are really high. So I've been enjoying it the whole time and it's been a, a really quality comic. I heard a few people talking about when, when the first issue dropped, but I haven't heard a lot of people talking about it since or seen a lot of, uh, talk on social media. So I'm sure to cover every issue because it's so good. And I think it's flying a little bit under the radar. So I do, uh, I do recommend you guys checking it out. All right. Up next, uh, another comic from image. This one's deep beyond it's from writers, Mirka Andolfo and David Goy. We've got uh, art by Andrea Brocardo colors by Barbara Nascenzo. Giuseppe Cafaro handles the ink slash finishes as it's credited for pages 15 and 18. Fabio, Amelia, and Maurizio Classi do the letters. And, uh, you know, speaking of post-apocalyptic, this is basically the story of a, a world where the oceans have sort of revolted, right? It's the year 2085. Uh, there's been a series of cataclysmic events in the year 2000 that made the planet almost uninhabitable. All the remaining humans live in colonies and they're dependent on technology to defend themselves from this environment that they polluted. 
and there's a bunch of monsters and mutants and whatnot in the ocean. And so uh, previously we saw there was a scientist named Pamela Bell who was on a uh, mission to study the sea, a particular region where there were anomalies detected and they were trying to figure out what was going on there. And then she disappeared, they lost communication. So her, uh, her colleague and her ex-boyfriend, Paul Bailey, went out trying to look for her. He's not really, you know, he's more of an academic type. He's not really a hands-on, ad adventuresome uh, kind of guy, uh, but he gets recruited by these, I don't know, want to call them rebels, but they're, they're kind of survivalists that, uh, that kind of go against uh, the authority and they're, they're trying to find a way to survive as well, but they don't necessarily agree with the way the government is, uh, is doing things. And what little we know about the politics uh, seems very complicated as well. Uh, but one of the members of this sort of um, de facto survivalist group is Jolene, who's Pamela's sister. So she's out there uh, as well trying to, to rescue her sister. And so uh, they hooked up with Paul. They brought him to their base and they were trying to uh, basically steal a submarine from this old, uh, I don't know if it was a military base or whatnot, when all of a sudden... Uh, there was some sort of self-destruct protocol uh, security that was uh, triggered, and some of the uh, members of their team lost their lives, but the majority of them managed to escape in this submarine, and now they're out there looking for uh, Pam. Like I said, there are some other factions and some other politics going on with uh, the president, and they're trying to hide things, and it's not clear if maybe... Uh, what's left of the government had something to do with the cataclysms or, yeah, we're, we're just not sure. There's definitely other things going on that we're not privy to that aren't necessarily on the, uh, the up and up. So in this issue, we basically get that team that are out there looking for Pamela, kind of a, a big chunk of their journey in terms of, you know, finding out where Pamela is or, or hunting down the, the wreckage of her uh, submarine and, you know, where, where does the story go from here? So I can't really talk about too much of the story beyond that, because this is a very, very tightly paced action packed issue uh, with the exception of the, the first couple pages, which sort of established um, or remind us how close Pamela and Jolene are their twin sisters. And so it gives us a little context there. And from, from that point on, it's pretty much nonstop action the whole time. So I can't really talk too much in, in detail about story because I don't want to give anything away, but I will say that the art, the line work is, is beautiful. The colors work very, very well, especially in the underwater scenes, you know, a lot of blues and the, the monsters are uh, brightly colored and sufficiently scary and, and monstrous looking with all kinds of eyes and fangs and tentacles and whatnot. So and in terms of that, everything works really, really well. If I had any complaint about the art, it would just be that everything is sort of at the same depth of field. Uh, we don't get too many shots where we're zoomed in on people's expressions or we're zoomed in on, you know, a particular piece of action or monster or whatever. Everything is sort of at that medium depth of, of field uh, with the camera, which isn't to say the art is bad and it does work. I just think if you vary that up, the art would be uh, a little more dynamic. Uh, but the color work is spectacular. Like I said, uh, the, the water colors and the monsters, the color of the water, I should say, 
and the monsters are all uh, beautifully colored. And um, I, I think the overall, it's a, it's a really beautiful book to look at. And it helps um, give that sense of, I don't want to say claustrophobia, um, but, you know, th this is a story that takes place in a submarine or underwater where there's inherent danger in those kind of environments for humans because obviously we can't breathe underwater and it's it's tight spaces and the way the panels are laid out on the page by the artist really sort of sell that that sense of uh closed in kind of feel um and with the water and the disaster overall feel of the book it's almost like um Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, or uh, the Poseidon Adventure—you know, one of those sort of stories where you feel the inherent danger of being underwater, and uh, you know, some disaster has you know befallen these these characters, and they're doing their best to survive, and they're only one mistake away from death, uh, sort of feel. That that this book captures that sense and that tone. Um, I'd say the Poseidon Adventure specifically. Uh, you know, that classic 1970s movie with uh, Ernest Borgnine. Um, it, it's Shirley MacLaine. It, it's, it, that's the feel that I get from it. So I, I really enjoy this, uh, this book. It's, it's done really, really well. I think most people might know the name Mirka and Dolfo more for, more for her art. Uh, and, you know, here she's handling the, the plotting and the scripting and she does a, an incredible job. So it's another one of those image titles that, I haven't heard a ton of people talking about it. I think the first issue might have sold out, but it's really good. It, it's a good story. I would recommend picking it up. You know, only three issues out so far. Uh, I don't know how many issues it's planned on, but uh, you, can, uh, you can count on a good story here for sure. So, all right, well, let me move on to the, the next book I'm going to talk about, which uh, is another uh, image book and one that I think a lot of people have been anticipating. It's Geiger from uh, co-creators Jeff Johns and Gary Frank. Jeff obviously handling the, the plotting and the scripting. Uh, Frank probably helping out with the plot, but also handling uh, the pencils and the line work. Brad Anderson handles the colors and Rob Lee handles the letters. So I've been highly anticipating this book. Most of Jeff John's stuff I think is great because the dialogue I can always count on being pretty solid. Uh, also the pacing and the plotting, he's got interesting ideas and uh, all, those, all of those things in this book work pretty well. If I had to nitpick on any of those things, maybe the pacing a little bit, I, I wouldn't have minded if this book was just a couple pages longer and I felt like I got a, just a little bit more of a chunk of the story. Um, you know, the Gary Frank art is is Gary Frank art, right? If you're familiar with his art at all, you will know that, you know, he's he's got uh, very detailed artwork, great line work, wonderful, you know, facial expressions and uh, the character acting, the way the uh, compositions of the panels are, all of that stuff is laid out exceptionally well. Uh, and because he has so much detail, the panels do tend to be a little bit larger, which you need because you want to be able to see that detail that he's putting in the art. Uh, the problem with that is when you do have those giant panels, and a lot of them are, don't have any dialogue in them um, at all or very little dialogue, which I appreciate. And Jeff Johns, you know, he, he knows the medium and he knows that you don't want to cover up that gorgeous uh, Gary Frank art 
with a bunch of, uh, of word balloons, right? So we've got a you know a giant two-page spread with the with the credits on it that you know has one word balloon, but then later we've got a, a splash page showing uh, an event with just a dog barking, uh, and then later on uh, another page with it's basically a splash page. It's a character reaction to something happening off in the distance, and again, there's no no words. Um, and then later on, we've got another two-page spread, followed just a few pages later by another full-page splash. Um, and all, you know, all these pages with just no dialogue or very little dialogue. And so it ends up making for a very, very quick read. And that's not to say that there's no value here or the story's not interesting. It, it sh it's very interesting. I'm hooked, and, and that's the point. I wanted more uh, because I did feel like it was a little bit of just a little bit of a quick read, you know, and uh, I feel like, hey, I want more. So uh, it, it's it's an interesting story. Like I said, it's, it's post-apocalyptic. We get a little bit of, of the setup, and I imagine we'll go back in time at some point and get a little more of the setup, because um, what's interesting is the way it plays out. We Apparently, we're far in the future, and then we flash back to the past to get the origin of, of this character, Geiger. And then we're seeing him in some sort of mid-period. So I think it's really three, uh, three time periods that we're uh, trying to understand here. Um, and the, the book definitely has a lot more or raises a lot more questions than it gives answers. So uh, I'm really curious to find out more, basically. Uh, I think this is a good first issue in terms of, of setting up questions and intrigue, but I definitely want more from the second issue in terms of give give me a little more story, give me a little more meat that I can uh, that I can chew on, a little more th uh, something to think about. Um, I don't necessarily need all the answers, but give me just a little more of the world because um, there are, like I said, plenty of questions raised here um, with no hints toward the answers necessarily. Uh, but n so little that sometimes I, I'm sitting here thinking, well, I, d I don't even know what questions to ask <laughs> at this point. I know so little. Um, but the book is beautiful. The, the, I mean, you put Gary Frank and Brad Anderson on the artwork and you're going to get something special. And, you know, uh, last time we saw something for them was on Doomsday Clock, which I felt the art there was was pretty solid. But... I don't know, maybe it's because they're known characters in a known world where it just didn't feel as fresh or as exciting as this does. Uh, the, the character of Geiger after the uh, sort of the apocalypse happens, the, the, the disaster or you know event, whatever you want to call it, um, when we get a chance to see him in his sort of current form, <laughs> it is amazing. It looks so, so good. Um, and there's just there's just a little bit of hint of maybe some emotion, um, some emotional motivation, or pulling uh, on the heartstrings just a little bit from John's that I'm curious about uh, as well. So I'm really really looking forward to the next issue. Uh, the only bad thing I'd say about this comic is you know it just came out and I got to wait a month <laughs> before I can get the next one. So uh, that's really great. Uh, I will also mention one last thing. There is an advertisement in the back of the book. He's the gun, she's the bullet, snipe and slug. And it's an advertisement for another 
image title coming from Mad Ghost, which is, uh, I guess you'd call it uh, Jeff John's imprint over there at Image, written by Peter J. Tomasi and Brad Walker. Uh, Peter J. Tomasi doing the writing, Brad Walker handling the art. This is the all-star team that did uh, Detective Comics most recently. And if I'm understanding it right, and from the art we can see, he's the gun, so he fires Slug out as a bullet because she's very small. Like, she's small enough to be standing on her shoulder. Think like Ant-Man or uh, or Adam. Um, and that's just a super intriguing concept. So I can't wait to, to find out more about that. I'll have to uh, hit Brad up and see if I can get him to come on the show. Maybe Peter as well. Uh, that would be pretty uh, pretty awesome. Uh, it doesn't it just says coming 2021 no uh no date yet so uh definitely looking forward to that uh anyway let me move on to uh the next book i'm going to talk about it is uh an aftershock book it's miles to go number four it's from b clay moore with art and colors by stephen molnair color assist by nova lee fortier and letters by dave sharp uh what more can i say about this book what, you all need to tell me, what do I need to tell you? What do I need to say to you about Miles to Go to convince you that this is a must read? This is one of the best books I have read in I don't know how long. The The characterization of, uh, of Alma and her, uh, her daughter, we even find something out about uh, Amara's uh, husband, you know, he came across the entire time as sort of a, a wet noodle. Um, and Amara always seemed to be the um, kind of the, the, the one with backbone, the one with all the strength. Uh, there's a twist thrown in here that uh, about Niles where he, there may be much more to him than we, than we had realized. Uh, we also learn a lot more about Amara's, uh, sort of birth, I guess you'd say, or childhood. There, there's much more to Amara than we ever were, were, were led to believe uh, before. And uh, there's so much that happens in this issue. Uh, I wouldn't say it's dialogue heavy. There, There is quite a bit going on. It is action-packed from start to finish. There's no page that's not important. There's no wasted space. And it, this is one of the most tightly paced and, and plotted and dialogued books that I've read in a long time. Uh, the, in fact, the two guys that are chasing Amara, they show up as well, but only in the first couple pages. Uh, and I expect to see more from them, but that's all got to be resolved in, in issue five. Plus, the, the mystery that we learn about Amara from way back in 1986 has to be resolved. What's going to happen with Amara and Aaliyah, you know, her daughter, and how's Amara's past that we just learned that there's something there? How's that going to play out? Uh, plus this mystery with uh, Amara's husband, who, again, more than meets the eye. Plus Amara's trying to figure out uh, exactly what the heck is, is going on, who's chasing her. Um, yeah, it, it's, again, it's it's so action-packed uh, that and so well-paced that you, you read it and you're just blown away. And before you know it, the issue's over. You've got a big chunk of story, but how is, is B. Claymore going to wrap this all up in, a, in only one more issue? And who's going to survive? Is Amara going to survive? Is Moses, uh, you know, this, this old man who uh, is kind of out on one last mission because he owed it to Amara's mentor? To, you know, he promised Amara's mentor 
that he would take care of uh, Amara if anything ever happened to the mentor. Um, so, you know, what, what happens? What happens with Moses? What happens with Amara? What's the secret of Amara's uh, birth or childhood? What's, what's that significance? Why and what might that play into in terms of Amara having a daughter? I keep going back to the, the curveball with the husband, Niles. I mean, there's so much here. There's so much here. This story was so good in terms of characterization and character acting and detail in the artwork from the beginning. I was blown away by Stephen Molnir. Uh, I think I talked about it when I covered the first issue, how when Amara and Niles, you know, these separated uh, in the process of a divorce people uh, and Amara's kitchen's immaculate. She's talking on the phone to Niles and you, then you switches over to Niles kitchen. He's got pizza boxes. Everything's dirty. And it was just with background and setting. Stephen Molnair told us who these people were. Amara's like clearly tired of taking care of this guy because he's a slob. Uh, and, and what does that say about him? You know, he doesn't take care of himself. He relied on Amara to do everything. She was the strong one. He was, you know, I don't want to say lazy, but you know, it, it was like she had another kid. He wasn't an equal partner. And you got all that subtextually. It wasn't presented. You weren't beat over the head with it. It was all there just from one scene with him talking on the phone and the kitchen being the background. From that point, I knew this was something special. And you know how I, I talk a lot of times about how a book will have ups and downs to get to where it needs to be in terms of story beat. You can't have everything, um, you know, dialed up to 11 because then there's no contrast. You have to have things go kind of up and down. Um, <laughs> maybe this is the, the series that, uh, that kind of the exception that proves the rule, right? Because we, we started at a very high level with issue number one. Um, and we, we haven't come down at all. Instead, what B. Claymore has managed to do is he's built on every previous issue. And it's just been kind of a diagonal line heading straight up. Um, so we're, we contrast things and not in terms of, oh, this was a little bit of a down issue in terms of story beats and now it's going to ramp back up uh, for the next issue. Instead, you read each subsequent issue and it, it's ramping up from the issue before. So as good as issue one was, it's in a way kind of the tamest in terms of action of, of any of the issues. And the, each one of them has built on top of uh, the previous issue. So it's just a kind of a straight ride up, up the hill or, you know, like a rocket ship taking off. Because uh, especially this issue, you know, this is the, the penultimate issue, the next to last issue of the series, where normally I kind of expect a, an issue to be a little bit of a down, you know, a little bit of a downbeat. So it, it makes the climax of the story hit that much harder. And instead, this is the most action-packed, uh, most... Uh, tightly paced and plotted issue that we've had from the series so far. Um, and like I said, they've each kind of gone up. Uh, maybe uh, you could make the argument that maybe uh, issue three, last issue with Moses um, going and meeting with his, uh, his daughter when she doesn't even know that she's Moses's daughter. You could maybe say that one's a little bit of a slowdown on the story, uh, but there's plenty of action in that issue too. So uh, this, this just blew me away. The story, the series, this title, it's constantly impressing me. Just when I think it can't get any better, we get another issue that just blows me away. So I cannot recommend this enough. To me, this is an award-winning comic. It should be nominated for awards. It should win awards. It is so good. Um, you know, if you like 
like crime stories, uh, you know, action stories, adventure stories, uh, stories that are, you know, sort of detective or uh, government conspiracy, that kind of thing. You're going to love this. The art by uh, Stephen Mulnair, including the colors, is is pitch perfect. Fits the story uh, very very well. Uh, like I said, his uh, his backgrounds are detailed and they're they're so additive to the story and the tone and and what's going on. I love the way he draws uh, Aaliyah's hair. Uh, his color work is great in terms of choosing the the right tones to suit the emotion of the story uh, based on what's happening in the panels. It's just this this comic is amazing. It's it's very nearly a, a perfect comic, uh, and everybody should be reading it. It is so good. So uh, miles to go from Aftershock, written by B. Clay Moore, uh, Stephen Mulnair on on the art, and Dave Sharp on the letters. Uh, you can't go wrong. It's really 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 good. Um, I don't know that you could necessarily pick up this issue issue four uh, and understand what's uh, going on. You you probably could. Might have to read it a couple times. But if you can get your hands on the first three issues and then, you know, pick this one up, get caught up and be ready when issue five hits to, to figure out how the heck B. Claymore is going to wrap all this up. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for it. And, uh, and B. Clay's already said he's going to come back on the show to, to talk about uh, the series when it's all said and done. So I can't wait to have him on to, to talk about this because it's exceptional. It's so good. Uh, all right. Well, let me uh, move on. Next book uh, I'll talk about is Noctera number two, uh, written by Scott Snyder, co-creator and art by Tony S. Daniel, colors by Tameo More, and World Designs handles the letters. The first issue of Noctera, which is basically a world where they call it the Big PM went down. You know, this is another post-apocalyptic tale. The Big PM was basically the day the world went dark and there's no longer sunlight. And not only is uh, everything in the dark, but the dark corrupts uh, whatever it, it uh, is exposed out there in, in the dark uh, for a long time without any light. And so uh, if you as a person are out there and you get infected by this darkness just from being exposed to it, you uh, it starts in your gums where they start turning black. It starts rotting, and then eventually you're mutated and you become this terrible creature. And so uh, a lot of the world is unrecognizable from what it used to be these uh, like animals and plants have mutated and been corrupted by the darkness. And then those uh, corrupted uh, species have mated with each other and created even worse horrors and, and what have you. And so we're, uh, we're following along with Val. She's what's called a ferryman. She drives these uh, ferryman. They drive these 18 wheel trucks uh, that transport people and goods from place to place, and they're all decked out with very high-powered lights to keep the darkness and those uh, creatures that live in the darkness at bay. And, uh, you know, the world's teetering. They're, they're trying to survive as best they can. Val's brother, uh, Emery, has been infected, and she's trying to get him treatment, you know, get him exposed to powerful enough light to sort of purge the, uh, the infection. And in order to do that, she took a fare uh, for... Um, an older man and his granddaughter who claims to uh, be able to, to sort of heal uh, Emery if they can get them to this, uh, this specific sanctuary where the, the old man has promised that there's uh, equipment, powerful enough lights to purge the infection from Emery. So all that happened in the first issue. And right at the end of the first issue, we meet 
somebody called Blacktop Bill, who's been hired to uh, to kill this uh, this old man, uh, who claims to be able to uh, turn back time, as it were, and save the world, bring back the light. Um, and so, whether or not he's telling the truth or not is sort of central to uh, to this theme uh, and this issue. And we get a big, big chunk of story. This, uh, you know, the first issue was fast paced, and uh, I feel like we still got a solid chunk of story, but we get even more here. We get more from Val. She narrates the issue. We see kind of the aftermath of the big PM and and her thoughts and her relationship with Emery and how much he means to her. She's his uh, older sister. She's adopted. Um, And we also find out uh, a little bit more about uh, Blacktop Bill. We find out more about this old man and his granddaughter and all this in the context of this incredible art from Tony Daniel with amazing colors by Tomeo More, where the, the palette that he uses jumps around throughout the issue, which I, I find to be really interesting. For the most part, he uses bright colors, but sometimes the hues are greenish. Sometimes they're reds and oranges. Sometimes they're blues. He really jumps around and mixes it up in it. It really highlights the art from uh, Tony Daniel. And as far as the line work goes, I think this is some of the best work, if not the best work of Tony Daniel's career. There's a little bit more fluidity to his line work than I'm used to seeing from him. Uh, it's a little bit softer. And it, it, what it does is it humanizes these characters and it humanizes the story. Uh, as terrible as this world is and the world building that Snyder and Daniel have done is impressive um and this world feels menacing it feels dangerous if it it feels um like it could take the lives of these characters at any moment and because of that you feel a fragility to these characters you you worry for them that they're not going to survive uh, the panel or the page or the issue. Um, and it lends so much weight to the story that there's this overall feeling of, of menace, right? Like, I don't know if you ever had this when you were a kid, you know, where we were all sort of uh, scared of the dark uh, a little bit to some extent. And I know Scott Snyder has said that that's a little bit of the inspiration for this story. Uh, but I can remember when I was a kid, if I go walking down the hallway to my bedroom and all the lights in the house were out, you get that little feeling kind of, in the middle of your back, like just below your neck, like there's somebody there and they're watching you or they could be stabbing you or attacking you from, you know, it's just that feeling, that feeling of, of menace or worry. That's the feeling that Daniel and Scott Snyder have captured so perfectly well here. Um, And it happens in the pages where we don't necessarily see these uh, <laughs> these really grotesque and hideous monsters that Tony Daniel has designed. That feeling more exists in the panels where we don't see them, where it's just a Val talking to her brother or uh, Val talking to her friends or being out in the world or even kind of the, the setup shots that we get of the environment, right? Those are the, the shots and the panels and the pages that give you that that fear of the unknown, that fear that there's something lurking, that it could be behind you. There's something out there in the dark that's scary and dangerous, and it could be coming for you, and you wouldn't even know it. Um, 
and that's the feeling of of Noctera. And I think that that's exactly the feeling that Scott and Tony were going for, and they've they've nailed it. They've nailed it. Um, and and that's me obviously reading a lot into and pulling out from my own reaction to uh, the story that they've uh, created here and the title that they've made. But you can also just read this on the surface. If you, if you want to dive that deep into it, um, you can read it on the surface and enjoy the gorgeous art and just have fun with it for what it is, which is an action packed comic book story that looks super cool with great colors and artwork. Um, but if you take the time to start thinking about the themes and, kind of immerse yourself in the world that they've created there's so much more to it there's a you know that sense of panic that sense of terror that's kind of just there ready to take you over um like you know when i was a kid walking down the hallway and i'd go walk really fast so i could turn the light on in my room because you just didn't know what was out there in the dark so uh noctera is is spectacular it's such a great title uh, another highly recommended book uh, out this week so uh, let me move on and talk about uh, the next book. It's another Aftershock title. It's also from Steve Orlando, just like the first book I talked about. Uh, but this one's Project Patron, uh, Patron, I should say, I guess. Men of Circuits and Steel from writer Steve Orlando. The art is by Patrick Piazzalunga. Colors by Carlos Lopez and letters by Thomas Maurer. Now, we had Steve on to talk about this book, and he, he gave us a lot of insight into what it was about. And, you know, it's uh, it's about a hero, a Superman type hero who dies while fighting this uh, this terrible, evil uh, villain slash monster who was uh, responsible for the death of the dinosaurs and who's showed up throughout time and uh, has wreaked havoc. And this uh, the Superman type hero, the patron, he dies. He dies fighting this. This terrible monster called Woe. Uh, but then he rises, just like Superman, just like Superman in the Death of Superman storyline. Patron, the patron, rises again uh, a few days later, and uh, and ever since then he has been fighting the good fight, and he's he's been there uh, trying to save the world, a living humanitarian aid package from a dimension far away. Uh, but what we find out through the course of the issue is that's not actually the case. What has happened is the government has created a what they call a reploid basically this replicated version of the patron that different people pilot to sort of uh, make the world believe that the patron is still around that he still exists and he's still there to help them uh, save the world and these these pilots that the pilot the patron they're giving a lot of themselves they're sacrificing themselves uh, every time they run a mission and they um, remotely control this uh, reploid that's a, a copy of the patron they lose a year out of their life and so they have different people in this project patron who t undertake different types of missions some of them more the scientific space time missions some of them more the the brawler type missions some people uh you know in between they just uh, got a new member of the team who's uh, a psychologist and he's going to handle kind of the more cerebral almost pr emotional type missions uh and so it's, it's very interesting all of a sudden what i mean when i was talking to steve it, it felt like it was going to be um sort of an examination of what it means to be a hero and what it means to belong but right away from the start what i in reading it what i and i should have realized this with steve 
the relationships between the team members and the emotion of the book, the emotion of these characters, how they feel about themselves and each other and how they feel about patron as an idea, as a concept, as a hero, as this concept of a hero that needs to live on and give the world hope. That's really what is central at the book and what comes across. Um, and it's done incredibly well. Um, I, that's the one thing that I kept coming back to as I read, I read it twice and it, it just struck me the relationship, how much these people sacrifice, how much they care about each other, how much they care about what they're doing and the emotion that you know, that they feel that comes across from the belief in what they're doing, even though you could make the argument that what they're doing in a way is not right because they're, they're lying to the world. Um, and they're keeping this secret. So should that be done? Is, is that really being a hero? Is that being heroic? Um, it, it's a very complex story and it's done in a spectacular fashion by Steve Orlando. Um, felt like we got a big chunk of story. It's paced really well. The scripting is well done. The, the artwork suits the story very, very well. It's somewhat of a muted palette in terms of colors, which Normally, I would want bright colors for a story like this. You know, it's adventuresome, and it's, uh, you know, it's Project Patron, and it's the patron, and he's a hero, and he's a Superman analog. Um, but when you start coming down to all the emotional stuff that I started talking about, to keep this book with the right tone and, and for, for readers to pull out of what, uh, out of it, what I think Steve Orlando wants us to, I think you do need a more of a, a muted palette. You can't go with the bright primary colors because then the other stuff, uh, the emotional stuff, it just seems like an afterthought. Um, and by going with this more muted palette, I think it, it pulls out those emotions more. It, it makes it feel more realistic. Uh, it gives it a, a feel of um, kind of that world outside your window, the gray areas, the fact that everybody they don't have their own agenda, but they have their own beliefs and they have their own feelings and everybody's sort of, uh, even though they're a team, they are individuals and they see their roles differently. They have different roles with patron uh, in terms of what missions they undertake and how they see what their role is and how they interact. And uh, something happens at the end of this issue, which is going to throw all of them for a loop. That's going to be very interesting to see. Uh, it's almost like Steve Orlando, you know, showed us this world, showed us this situation, showed us how complex and emotional it is. And then he throws a grenade in at the end that's going to dial all that up to 11. <laughs> so I really am excited to see what happens next. And uh, yeah, I was impressed. You know, like I said, we had Steve on to talk about it and I was anticipating it just because it sounded like a really cool concept, but I wasn't prepared for the level of emotional complexity in this, I, I didn't expect it. And it, it was a pleasant surprise and a very, very compelling read, uh, great pacing. And uh, I was really, really impressed. So uh, you can get in on the ground floor. It's the first issue, uh, some great art from uh, Patrick Piazza Lunga. So I do recommend that, uh, that book as well. Uh, all right, on to the last book I'm gonna talk about in detail. It's uh, another image book. It's called The Silver Coin. It's from uh, Chip Zdarsky. He handles the writing. Lines, colors, and letters are by Michael Walsh. 
And uh, the silver coin is created by a whole team of creators, Michael Walsh, Ed Brisson, Jeff Lemire, Kelly Thompson, and Chip Zdarsky. And, uh, you know, I, these are, with the exception of Chip and Michael, Ed's been on the show, Jeff's been on the show, Kelly's been on the show, um, or is about to be on the show, I should say. This is a really cool concept. Kelly's going to be on again soon. I can't wait to talk to her about this. I'd love to have Michael and Chip on as well. Uh, like, how does this all work in terms of how can you have five people that created this and are you going to each take turns writing an issue? This one was written by Chip. Next issue is written by Kelly. Michael's handling uh, the artwork, but what exactly is the silver coin? I mean, is, is it just an interesting way to, to tell a horror anthology? Is that what, what it's about here? Uh, in this issue, a rock musician discovers the silver coin and sort of uses it to try to get ahead. Um, it, the silver coin is almost like a, a monkey's paw. Is that what it's called? Where you, you find something that you can, can wish on a cat's paw. Um, but there's horrific consequences that you don't realize are happening. It's sort of like that, um, but with a silver coin instead. Uh, but again, really compelling and uh, a relatively quick read, but you, there is that sense of on the outside looking in, like watching a train wreck, you can't look away <laughs> because from the outside looking in, you know the choices that these people are making are not the best choices. Um, and they could be making other choices, which would maybe not lead them to the same level of success, but might make them happier in their lives. Uh, and you want to, you sort of wish, I wish I could warn them, right? But you know, you can't. Um, and so that's kind of the, the feel of, of the book. So uh, it's, it's very interesting. Like I said, it's a relatively quick read. Um, it's well-paced. It's uh, scripted pretty well. Uh, the artwork by Michael Walsh is spectacular, uh, especially his, uh, his emotions and the faces. That is where his art shines the most. Um, and also his compositions are, are done really, really well, uh, especially in terms of exaggerating things and stretching things out for effect. And uh, the color work by Walsh is also done really well. He, he moved, he, switches the palette around on various pages to kind of set the tone and the mood uh, and, and to set us up for certain emotional beats in the story. And that all works really well also. So this is a really, really good book. I'm not, you know, I'm not the biggest horror guy, but this was a great story. Great start. Um, Zadarsky, you know, he, he brings the emotion like he usually does. Uh, but what's interesting is he he's not necessarily playing with the, the types of emotions that I'm used to seeing Chip use, you know, feelings of uh, of hope or loss, um, you know, usually tugging on our, our heartstrings with those kind of uh, those kind of emotions. He sort of taps into more of the, the negative side of things here, you know, exploring, uh, I guess, greed in a way or uh, or envy, uh, anger, certainly. Um, and the price that those negative emotions can take, uh, especially when you have a silver coin, magic silver coin that can uh, kind of facilitate things. So uh, I don't know if a lot of people are going to be picking this up this week, but uh, you should, you know, um, 
much like Ice Cream Man, which Manny always touts, uh, you know, the first issue of that horror anthologies uh, is uh, it has value. And so I would, this is kind of along those same lines. I think it, it's probably not as weird or as esoteric or as out there as uh, as Ice Cream Man, from what I understand. Uh, this is more kind of classic straight up horror, uh, but I could easily see this book kind of falling in that vein where it's going to have value later. People are going to not realize like, wait, wait, what's this silver coin book that everybody's talking about and want to go back and find a first issue and you're, you're not going to be able to find it. So be sure you pick yourself up uh, a copy uh, because the first issue was, was really good. I was, I was very impressed. I didn't know what to expect. Uh, and like I said, I'm not the, the biggest horror guy, but uh, the ticket, I thought uh, definitely was the ticket. It was it was really cool, uh, so I, I definitely recommend it. Uh, all right, well that's going to do it for the books that uh, I've read that I'm going to talk about. Uh, a reminder: if you want to know more about the DC stuff, go check out the DC Spotlight. Let me give a rundown on some of the other books that are out today that you might want to be on the lookout for. Uh, over at uh, AWA Studios, we have Resistance Uprising number one, which is a follow-up to that series. Uh, at Boom, Magic, number one, which is a Magic the Gathering comic, which my understanding is Boom sold something like 85,000 copies of. <laughs> so it's a pretty big deal. Um, people are already talking about it being a, a valuable comic. I don't know what that many, uh, I don't know if it was speculators or, or what was going on or if it's just Magic players that decided, hey, there's a new Magic comic, I want to check it out. That many copies, I don't know if it can hold its value, uh, but there are a lot of people that play Magic does look interesting. Um, I did pre-order a copy myself. I used to play Magic. I was curious enough. Uh, and Boom puts out some pretty good stuff. So uh, so be aware of that. Uh, also, Seven Secrets from Tom Taylor and Danielle D. Nakulo returns with issue number seven uh, at Boom. Uh, over at uh, DC, like I said, we covered those uh, on yesterday's uh, podcast. But I, I will mention uh, it's Batman number 107. We also have Crime Syndicate number two. Green Lantern, number one. Joker Harley, Criminal Sanity, number eight. The Suicide Squad, number two. And Swamp Thing, number two of ten. There also was uh, Sensational Wonder Woman, number two. And uh, what is it? Batman. Where, no, next Batman, Second Son, number one of four. Those are both digital firsts that they're collect collecting. Uh, also, Man Bat, number three. Far Sector, number 11. And there's one other book. Where is it? Oh, Dreaming Waking Hours, number nine of 12. Those last three we didn't cover on our uh, on our DC Spotlight, but they're out from DC this week uh, as well. Uh, meanwhile, over at uh, Image, in addition to the books that I talked about, Firepower, number 10, from Robert Kirkman and Chris Somney, Savage Dragon, number 258, and Walking Dead Deluxe, number 12, from uh, Robert Kirkman over at Marvel. Uh, Amazing Spider-Man, number 63. Spider-Man's still in that new costume. Avengers, number 44. Conan the Barbarian is up to number 20. So is Excalibur in the X-Men corner of the Marvel Universe. We have the latest issue of Immortal Hulk, number 45, hitting stands. King in Black miniseries wraps up with number 5 of 5. Uh, we have Squadron Supreme Marvel Tales number one, which reprints some classic Squadron Supreme tales. Star Wars The High Republic number four, and Venom number 34. 
uh, and over at Titan Blade Runner number 2029, number four, Vault has the second issue of Hollow Heart, which uh, I think the first issue sold out, so you might want to check that out. Hollow Heart number two, and uh, that does it for uh, some other titles that you might want to be on the lookout for. So, like I said, a lot of really, really great books out this week. Uh, don't forget about the Bad Idea books, ENIAC and uh, Tankers. You got to be there in person. You uh, you won't pay more than cover price, and uh, the first issue of ENIAC did sell out pretty quick, so you may want to get to your a comic shop as early as possible tomorrow to be able to pick those up. So um, those are the, the books that I read and had a chance to talk about. Hope you guys all enjoyed the episode as, as always. Really appreciate your support and we will talk to you next time. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.